0: All right. Welcome to Single Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I'm a uh, podcaster and writer and author. I've got a book called The Quick Fix Why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills. I've got a newsletter at jessessessingle.substack.com. And I've got a podcast called Blocked and Reported that I co host with Katie Herzog. You can check that out at blockedandreported.org. I wanted to start with actually an email I got from someone. I thought it was sort of an interesting question about this format. Uh, other don't have a huge amount to say uh, or pre-planned. was well, one other thing we could talk about. Anyway, hey, Jesse, your shows are generally on when I'm at work. I'd get in the queue otherwise. Anyway, when I listen to you and Ethan Strauss and Ryan Glasspiegel on Colin, it really reminds me of the open-line radio shows my folks used to listen to on AM radio when I was a kid. I wonder how much exposure to those kinds of mostly local, in my case, shows you had, and if they influenced you at all in regards to doing these spots. Or if not, what are your thoughts on radio generally as a medium going forward, and specifically the in-the-moment interactivity that podcasts first did away with, but Colin now seems to be trying to bring back? Uh, also, real quick, anyone else you'd recommend as a follower, someone else whose work I should check out, who's along the same lines of Strauss and Beagle, who's being thoughtful and heterodox in the sports space? Enjoy your content always from... Redacted. Uh, okay. I don't know other heterodox sports people, to be honest. I think uh, Ethan is really uh, carving out a good role on that. On the other question, um, growing up in Boston, I would often listen to sports talk radio. Ted Sarandis is the sort of locally legendary name that comes to mind. I, I'm in Boston now. i still driving around. We'll sometimes turn it on. And that reminded me of just some of the parasocial relationships that develop where like a host will know, you know, Bobby from Saugus will call in most days and they sort of, they sort of know each other and they know Bobby's general shtick. Sometimes callers would actually prepare almost a two minute bit, you know, ranting about the latest Celtics trade or whatever. It's an interesting format that probably influenced me in one way or another growing up. I was also like my first, one of the first things that got me interested in politics was like, morbid fascination with the conservative movement, circa uh, 2006-ish, 2002-ish when I entered college. And I listened to a lot of like, I was fascinated by far-right radio. I would often do these 12-hour drives between Ann Arbor and Boston, and I would seek out folks like Sean Hannity and Michael Savage. And I think a lot's been written on this, but maybe younger people might not realize the extent to which conservatives used uh, AM radio to really get their message out there, the, both with national-level figures like, obviously, Rush Limbaugh and Michael Savage and Sean Handy, but also, like, every market had these sort of pretty hard-right radio hosts who would regularly spread this stuff, and I think they were much more effective at it than the left. Um, the la- lefties or liberals launched Air America, which was going to be, like, the left-wing equivalent of that for radio. I think Al Franken played a big founding role on it and it it just fell flat. I don't know what it is, but uh, liberals and leftists have not really mastered the call in radio format. Um I'm not sure why that is. Podcasts, obviously, there's some <clears throat> excuse me, very successful lefty podcasts. But uh yeah, I'm sure a lot of this stuff had some influence on me. Obviously, not like Michael Savage thematically or politically, but um I found it's pretty challenging to always have a response because like, if 10 people call in, at least one of them is going to – or several of them are probably going to ask about stuff where you can't form a quick response off the top of your head and you're not necessarily in an area where you have much knowledge. So I think – part of the genius even when it was used for sort of reactionary political purposes is that uh, a lot of the am radio folks are sort of legendary orators and and they can extemporaneously talk about whatever a caller asks them about in addition to giving sort of long like limba monologue so i think there's a lot of skill sets there i um I don't have that much of like, I think I'm pretty good at this and I'm learning from it. And I really like the idea of trying out arguments here and, and especially being critiqued on here. Although it's been interesting to me that I've had so few genuine critics, uh, reach out to me on this platform where they could have direct access to me. It's much more folks who like, like my work in general, but have a, a a knit to pick or a bone to pick on some specific thing. So I tried early on to do a room just for folks who like disagreed with me. I got, Basically, nothing, so that didn't work anyway. So, that's that. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about a piece on Stuart Richie, and folks should really get in the queue because I'm open to take whatever questions you have, and no one's in the queues yet. Stuart Ritchie has a really good newsletter called Science Fictions, he's a um, Scottish, I believe. I'm badly microgressing in him by confusing English and Scottish. I think he's Scottish, but he lives in London. Uh, he's a science writer. He wrote a great book called Science Fictions about sort of bad science. There was some overlap with mine, but he focused mo- a lot more on like biology and stuff like that, cancer biology, blots, fraudulent blots, stuff like that. He has a piece called Circling the Wagons that folks should really check out, StuartRichie.substack.com. And the point of it was basically that conservatives were the first to react about uh, to this paper in the journal qualitative research called I am not alone. We are all alone using masturbation as an ethnographic method in research on Shota Shota S H O T A. I don't know how to pronounce it. Subculture in Japan. This is a crazy paper. It was so it's autoethnography, which means, you know, ethnography about your own life written from your own perspective, which I'm sure there's like legitimate examples of that. But in this case, the guy is really just jerking off to stories about little boys, uh, sometimes stories about little boys doing stuff to one another. It's very creepy, uh, and it's I find it indefensible. And I say that as someone who has defended researchers who do things like try to figure out why child molesters molest kids and who believe in destigmatizing people talking about child sex um attraction in, like, a clinical way, which I think is important if we want to prevent child sex abuse. But just this just seems completely different. And Richie's point is, like, all these lefty um, academic types immediately defended this paper just because Tories were outraged by it. But there was nothing there to defend because it, it really is that bad. So <clears throat> someone pointed me to a piece in Persuasion by Yasha Monk about 180-ing uh, – I guess he got that idea from Emily Offey. That's the idea of like whatever the outgroup doesn't like. We just do a 180. It must be good if the out group doesn't like it. Or if the outgroup likes it, it must be bad. And I think that's a very superficial way of understanding the world. And this was a really good example of that because um, maybe there's some principled defense of publishing this paper, but it, it's really out there, man. Anyway, Craig, hopefully this question is not about masturbating to Japanese boys.
1: Oh shit! I was <laughs> Jesse. You got me. Yeah. Uh, no, I wanted to ask you about uh, if you had heard about what's going on with the Tavistock, the NHS gender clinic that just got closed. There's yeah. An so, article in the Times of London about how it's going to get it's getting possibly sued by like a thousand families for medical negligence, and I was wondering. Yeah.
0: It was so, like, so one of the lawyers from the law firm organizing this class crazy, action suit against would happen
1: Tavistock in the states. Say again. Oh no! Sorry. What was the last no, thing no, you no. said
0: about whether it would happen in the
1: states? Yeah, well, if you thought, like, we might see that happening in the States, too. that's something. Yeah,
0: so <laughs> I think I've got some kind of lag here one way or another. But um, basically, this lawyer working for a firm that's trying to set up a class action case against Tavistock for negligent medical care. Tavistock is one of the most important youth gender clinics in the world. Um, or It's a couple different clinics, and it's the way you get youth gender services through the NHS because it's a nationalized health care system. Um, they're being shut down due to really shitty practices revealed in this review by uh, a pediatrics expert named Hillary Cass. And yeah, the Times reported that according to the lawyer organizing the class action suit, they could have up to a thousand families on this in this class action suit, which would be crazy. Um, I think we should probably take that with a grain of salt because the lawyer is probably trying to get attention, and a thousand definitely got people's attention it sounds like he's they're just starting this and he doesn't know how many families will come out and want to join this class action suit but i think it's clearly a big deal the question i posed on twitter and i'm sort of echoing something i put in my most recent spectator column that isn't out yet is what possible reason would there be to think that we don't have these issues in the u.s given these issues happen in england given finland and sweden have seriously scaled back their blockers and um hormones programs because of concerns over the research i i just think everything about the american healthcare system which is much more diffuse spread out less regulated especially in this area i think there's every reason to think stuff's been worse here and that doesn't mean there aren't um responsible multidisciplinary gender clinics i've, I've interviewed people at some and i i would trust them with anyone's kids frankly but i think it's sort of a wild west here uh And it makes you wonder, because we now have scandals at two different clinics, Tavistock and Karolinska in Sweden, um, both really bad scandals uh, that have not yet fully unspooled themselves. So I just think this is a sign that uh, clinicians and activists may have gone a little bit out over their skis on this issue before the evidence was in. And if you read the so-called interim cast review, you'll see that like at Tavistock, the clinicians didn't even agree on a basic philosophy of how you should treat kids with gender dysphoria. Like There was what they call the clinician lottery where you could get a really good thoughtful clinician or you could get a shitty one. And on top of that, there was really long wait times, which makes everything bad. So I just think this is a disaster and I don't see how anyone, I'm open to the argument that we're not going to have something worse happen in the States as we learn more about this and as more people come out. But I, I don't see why any reason to believe that. Did I more or less answer the question?
1: Yeah, actually um, thanks a lot, Jesse. I, I realized I had walked away from my wifi uh, on vacation right now. So like, I was, like, walking away from the Wi-Fi, so I lost you for a second. That's why there was lag. I guess the I, just a really quick follow-up. I actually what – what is the – I'm sure you've talked about it on and Reported with Katie. If uh, What was the Swedish – if you don't remind me of the Swedish controversy at the Swedish vendor clinic? And I,
0: I did this in my newsletter. I forget if we talked about it. At Karolinska, which is, like, one of the best medical centers in the world, there was a scandal where they appeared to have covered up major side effects for uh, kids who went on blockers, including suicidality, including a kid having – not osteoporosis, but like something sort of adjacent to it at age 15. So um, it was just oh, a disaster, geez. and it led to a major scandal revealed on a documentary by the public broadcaster there.
1: Okay. Thanks a lot, Justin.
0: Not, not great stuff. Thank you, Craig. Peyton, what's up? Hey, can you hear me? I can.
2: Awesome. Um, I was wondering about what your opinion on comment set stuff on Substack, because I used to be a huge reader of barry weiss common sense and i don't know if you have seen the comment section there these days but it is a disaster it is like full of like really like hard right types um you know anytime she publishes anything that's critical of trump at all they all jump on her um it's pretty bad and i've noticed like a lot of these like sort of like intellectual dark web writers seem to have accrued a following that's just like really far right um and i don't know what do you think these authors should be doing anything about that i used to like not buy the argument that oh if you know if racist people like barry weiss that doesn't that doesn't speak poorly on barely barry weiss but maybe in this context it does i I don't know. It seems to be getting pretty extreme these days. Yeah,
0: I, I do think that's like the natural it's a good question. Um I think that's unfortunately the natural trajectory of a lot of comment sections. I just had a like one of the first ever blow-ups in my own much smaller one where I, you know, I definitely have some readers on my newsletter who are who are skeptical of certain, you know, claims about like gender identity and stuff like that, but they tend to be liberal. There was like a pretty hardline social conservative who I had never heard from before who's posting, you know, anti, not only anti-gay marriage, but anti-gay sex arguments that were like straight out of 1990. I think there's a subset of like really angry reactionary person who are going to have a disproportionately loud voice in any community. And I also think that, there's a subset of conservatives who is like upset about wokeness and upset about cancel culture and probably appreciates hearing their frustrations echoed by certain liberals uh, or at least center left people like Barry, but will probably be disappointed when they find out that like Barry disagrees with them on things like Donald Trump. So in a few instances, I've had people express genuine surprise to me that if, if I find some of the stuff going on to the left so unpleasant why don't i just become a republican which to me is a baffling argument because you know the common thread in all this is is liberalism and I, I don't think there's a much more illiberal entity in america right now than the republican party whatever problems we have with the democrats so is it barry's i don't think it's like barry's fault she attracts certain people like if if you're i ha, i've had some shitty twitter followers but it's because at this point i have like one hundred twenty thousand of them and statistically if if one percent of them suck a they will they're more like people who suck are more likely to talk a lot online and take up a lot of space and then B, obviously anyone who disagrees with me will point to that as evidence that i'm bad but i could be missing something here i mean what what do you think is the argument that barry bears some culpability or should like do something about uh toxic trump supporters in her comments
2: Well, I I think one thing she could do is publish more, uh, like, a balance of more left-leaning op-eds. Like, she claims to be a big tent publication, and I felt like it was, but I I feel, and I haven't read everything that she's published, but it does seem to me, like, almost everything that's getting talked about is, like, pro, is, like, critical of the left, which is fine. I I know that's, like, her angle. Yeah. But, like, it's weird when center outlets just criticize the left, and then they attract everyone from the right and they're like, right. "Wait, that's not my fault," you know.
0: Yeah. No, and, and I think it's partly audience capture. It's also like I am frequently outraged by Trump, obviously, or by Alex Jones. I recently did a piece on Jones. I'm thinking of doing another piece on Trump, but it's so covered by so many other people that the it's a higher climb higher hill to climb for me to publish something original and worthwhile than Trump versus to provide this sort of reasonable interpretation of some culture or controversy multiple Multiple people are clamoring me to write about. So it's tricky. I, I agree. Right? But overall, like Barry Weiss, someone with as big a platform as hers, and she's like, a, has a national level platform, which is awesome in terms of like her number of paid subscribers. I, I think balance is good, but it's very easy to be tempted into just bashing the left all the time. And if you do that long enough, you, you will attract a certain kind of audience.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks.
0: Thanks, Peyton. Uh, and Morton.
3: Did I unmute successfully?
0: You did. I can hear you. Yes. So
3: this is this is funny because this is I was also calling in about the comment section, but I was calling in specifically about your comment section.
0: Yeah, it got a little it got a little rowdy. Heard too.
3: It got a little rowdy. It was fascinating though because it was the first time and I had seen that happen. It happens all the time on the Barry Weiss one. My theory on why it happens on hers uh, and why she has the there, there's a few things, and I think there's a lot of people who use comment sections. Some people use them to just connect with people and have conversations they can't have elsewhere. Some, some people proselytize. They see it as their, th- it's, this is their big chance to have a platform, essentially. And I think something strange happened early in Common Sense's history. It did get a lot of conservative press because of her departure from New York Times, etc., and I'm pretty sure she was on Megyn Kelly's podcast. And I think she has an inordinate number of, like I think a lot of the early marketing for it really leaned conservative, which I, I don't find, even though she criticizes the left very often, I find a lot of the criticisms to be the kind of criticisms of the left that I hear from the left, yeah. you know, from the skeptical left. So those are my theories for why that comment section is a, is a hot mess. Uh, because it's people who have like essentially purchased a product that they, they didn't want to begin with, but don't realize that yet. And at (laughs) least, you know, have this place where they can perform their outrage. But the thing that happened on your, um, on your Substack was kind of fascinating because it really did. And I hope it doesn't mark like, you know, a sudden change in the tide of the people who are pouring into that comment section, because there usually are some pretty thoughtful disagreements in the,
0: Oh, totally. That's what it surprised me about it because it's usually a for the by internet standards a very non toxic place.
3: Yes, and then his style the person who went in there who actually Googled him because I was like, who is this guy? Uh, and he turns out to be a quote unquote journalist. Uh, but but his style of engagement was that staccato Twitter BS where yeah. someone just and you were right. I had the same '90s flashbacks you had uh, from his.
0: Like, we should give people context. He said that, like he said things like <clears throat> he he said inflammatory things about gay sex being wrong. And he said gay not he was against gay marriage, but there's no such thing as gay yeah. people get married. People people got their backs up and one person said, Fuck you but most people just asked him to explain himself and he would just respond with these thought terminating cliches. At one point he's like he's literally like the penis doesn't go in the anus, it yes. goes in the vagina. I was like Thank you for the anatomy lesson. It's not, it's not like I heard 8 million <laughs> versions of that in 2003 when I was first learning about this subject. Very original.
3: Well, and the thing that really frustrated me about it, too, it became, like, puerile. And, and furthermore, like, here's the thing. Like, I'm, I'm, I was raised Catholic. I'm gay. And I'm married. And maybe not according to this guy, right? You
0: debunked read... your marriage.
3: He debunked my marriage. I know. But the thing that drives me crazy is there really are, you know, there's a lot of thoughtful Christians who are struggling with the idea of uh, gay marriage and the acceptance of gay sexuality and stuff like that. And the funny thing is as someone who like had to come to terms with it myself. And if, you know, and I have to some degree, I also understand why they have so much conflict over it. And there are writers who are able to write about it and, you know, they, they'll piss gay people like me off, but at least they'll fucking explain themselves. Yeah. And Rod, like Rod Dreher can be a total lunatic, especially on Twitter. Yeah. But his long form writing on this is really helpful to someone like me. And yeah. it illuminates a Christian perspective. And his he, frankly, there are concerns that I share with him about like slippery slope shit and stuff that's happening in the culture that I think is getting out of hand. So it drives me crazy when someone goes in there and uses this as their little performative, you know, it's almost like somebody coming in and you're you're looking for long form stand up, and this person shows up and they're, you know, they're a one-liner comic. Yeah. They're doing the Henny Youngman routine. And it was like that. And it it reminded me something that's very interesting is that sometimes uh, the way that you moderate content doesn't necessarily have to be about ideology at all it can simply be about the mutual respect right among the people who are there and then also the the, how much they want to express themselves and how much they they try to yeah uh, rather than simply do the tete-a-tete he was i mean he was basically uh, it was like
0: low effort christian shit posting basically
3: exactly exactly and it was really i don't know it was interesting to me because i would have welcomed somebody who who would have expounded on that even if it would have insulted Uh, but it was it was almost helpful to see this kind of It was sort of an example. It was almost like some drunk from Twitter wandered through the door of this.
0: It was very weird, yeah. And I I, I left the post up because it calmed down, but it made it such an unhappy place. Anyway, this is a good ad. For five bucks a month, anyone listening can get access to this comment section and and be told which body parts fit into which other body parts. And how that should be. Also, that that should be the basis of public policy which body parts fit into which body parts. Oh, of course. Yeah.
3: Yeah. but anyway, they, I just wanted to say that it was all this one guy. That's the the, the thing that I actually want to say that was fascinating, especially was how quickly one person can just sort of stink up the whole room. And it seemed like there was this suddenly everybody was a lunatic. But it's like, no, no, no. It was simply one person coming in and everybody reacting. So that's maybe another lesson as it is don't feed the trolls. But
0: yeah, uh, but I Okay. <laughs> no, it, it was hard to resist. I, I did too. Thank you, Morton. Yeah, I mean that just gets to this idea that like if even two percent of the commenters in a comment section that routinely gets dozens or hundreds of comments—I mean, a lot of mine on my newsletter are more like dozens—but just a small percentage of jerks can can really ruin things and distort the sense of the overall politics of the group. Anyway, W, what's up?
4: Yeah, I was uh, wanting to circle back to um, the article you mentioned, the showto article, just because. If I remember correctly, you and Katie had a conversation a while back about a professor from New York who was being defended by uh, fire, Stephen Kreschner. He was a guy who kind of defended or laid out some arguments about pedophilia, maybe being permissible, and also torture. And it was pretty, some stuff that was pretty offensive. And like a lot of academics and other people kind of rose to his defense, and I was just wondering, in your mind, what um, is a framework for trying to investigate whether or, n- or not something, what is that line, you know, yeah. like what is valuable speech or, because to him, like, I think Stephen I might have been on the opposite side of you is just thinking like, you know, I think this is just the same kind of, you know, it's not valuable, uh, uh, intellectual engagement or is not really substantive, but I want to kind of hear your thoughts about what that framework looks like for figuring that out.
0: Yeah. Do, I feel bad. I'm just blanking on the specifics. Do you remember what like the structure of his argument about pedophilia was? I am not sure.
4: Again, I was just like, yeah. He, I mean, it's a published text. I think it's called Child Adult Sex. And um, he also has other books on uh, torture. I think, um, let's see. I have it pulled up because I didn't remember his name even. Uh, Stephen, Stephen D. Krushner. He's at University of New York at Fredonia applied ethics law. Oh, this is like,
0: he was like a big libertarian type, right? Uh I could be misremembering.
4: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like law. Yeah.
0: Okay. He says it's not obvious to him that it's wrong. Um, It's not obvious to me that it's in fact wrong. He's talking about child sex relationships. I think this is a mistake. And I think exploring that why it's a mistake will tell us not only things about adult sex and statutory rape, but also about fundamental principles of morality. Um, I'm at a disadvantage here just because like, I'm just relying on this jogging my memory. <clears throat> but to me, there's there's something different. There's a difference between an academic argument, no matter how grotesque, saying, here's why I don't think this is wrong, versus an autoethnography where you literally participate in you know masturbating to child sex-oriented material. And it could be that I'm just like – Responding from a place of disgust to the latter, and not drawing a clearer principled line here. But um, you know, for example, if the dude we're talking about today had written an article like "Why I Don't Think It's Harmful" or "Why, why We Shouldn't Overregulate um, Child Sex Material," I, I, I'd be less inclined to like say that it's it's worthless scholarship. And the other question is like, what should be done about this? Like, the, should the author of this autoethnography be? removed from academia forever they also they'd given a 2012 vice interview that was apparently very cringeworthy i haven't read it yet so um i don't know i mean do you think i'm drawing too too fuzzy a line here
4: no i think that's a really um helpful distinction and i think like even seeing his colleagues like um at least for the stephen Kreshner one like kind of denounce him an academic freedom kind of thing was a little creepy <laughs> like yeah. You know. Yeah. And so, I don't know. I think that's a really helpful thing, and I think it's just like the methodology and other stuff. I mean, I I might like I do think like the stuff that that guy in New York was talking about is kind of bunk too. But like, I think has a right to publish it, and I think there's like, you know, one of those things. I'm more on the side of free speech, but I think that's a helpful framework to consider.
0: Yeah. And and I and I would always err on the liberal side on this stuff because I think especially in areas like this where like people are understandably grossed out and want to protect kids. There's been, when I was at New York magazine, I wrote about some research about like uh, sex offender lists and the restrictions put on sex offenders and how there's a pretty good case that they backfire and probably make people more likely to molest kids. Cause they're just not done in a thoughtful way. Similarly, you have these cases where a 17 year old will sext or have sex with a 15 year old and then get tagged a sex offender for life. So, to me, part of the reason of like maintaining a liberal attitude to this stuff even when we're grossed out, is there are edge cases where we should be able to discuss it like i I don't think I should be called pro pedophile because I don't think a seventeen year old should get on the sex offender list for having sex with a fifteen year old because that's to me obviously different from like a thirty year old having sex with a fifteen year old so that's just an example like why we should err on the side of um not drumming people out of academia even if this this particular case might be. I think it probably is past the line. Uh, Thank you, W. AA, what is next?
5: Hello? Hey, what's up? Uh, Unfortunately, I'm also going to talk about that same topic a little bit, uh, which is not smart for my end. I happen to know a little bit about uh, Japanese stuff, which is what I don't know about this particular case, but in my understanding, I think the word shoda usually refers to fictionalized, uh yeah. like not real people. So I think that's important to clarify. I'm not sure you made that clear. Um so was that true? Was it all fictional in the in the account?
0: Yeah, my sense is this is a subculture of, of trading like magazines of um mm-hmm. fictional accounts of sex
5: involving I don't know if
0: it's always boys. In this case it was it was young boys, yeah.
5: Right. Um yeah, I think it's important to, to note. Uh yeah, this is not really my super interest, but I would I would put it to you I guess the question of where how would you feel about like an autoethnography of someone doing like, a crime, like maybe a murderer? Right. or yeah? How would you feel about that? Seriously,
0: um, I think there are many situations where it'd be useful, for, like an autoethnography of a gangster, for example. And we have like popularized accounts of that. I think it's it's very useful. Um, so, you know, uh, I guess I I read this this paper today, and it it just. It sort of contributes nothing. Like he doesn't say anything of value. He doesn't offer any interesting insights into why people would be into this particular fetish, but that's a value judgment right there. I can't say he should be fired or, or they should unpublish this. Cause I think it was bad scholarship. I think it's more just a case of like, it's sort of surprising. I think most people would agree with me and standards are that standards are so low. Something like this could get published, but um, you you raise a totally fair point. I don't I don't think illegal activity is on its face a reason not to publish autoethnography or a reason why it couldn't be valuable. So I guess it's just a question of like what principle we think is being violated here. It could be it could also be like this is just
5: yeah. Anyway, I don't know. I I, I ran into a wall in my head as I started talking there. So to clarify, you're, you're not. It sounds like uh, you're not saying this. Nothing like this could ever be published. But you're saying in this case there isn't really any value in this particular one. But someone wanted to make sort of an ethnography explaining why someone might like this or trying to, like, delve into what is it about them that has this impulse then maybe that would have some value, but this one didn't have that.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's fairly put. I could imagine a version of this, probably not an auto-ethnography, but, like, it, I don't know, I, an ethnography. I'm sure he'd get criticized on similar grounds, but I would find the criticism less... Valid if the goal was try to to try to understand the subculture and why certain people are drawn to this. Uh, I know from other areas of like pedophilia research, the people who do stuff to kids often they're not always pedophiles. They oftentimes are like outcasts or have cognitive deficiencies or other trouble connecting with adults. So maybe something similar is going on here. And yeah, I could see something like that producing something of value, which I just thought was lacking in this particular paper.
5: Yeah, that seems like a fair concern. Yeah, I think it's a complicated... I don't want to come off of like, oh, this is great, I love this. But I think, I, I, here in your description, it sounds a bit more complicated to me, at least in my mind. But, I'm, I mean, I'm open to that kind of critique of what's the value in this, in this yeah. case. Uh, but I really wanted to call in, ask about something completely different. Uh, have you been watching uh, the rehearsal?
0: The rehearsal's unbelievably good. Yeah, everyone should watch it. And I tweeted about it a little uh... This is the Nathan Fielder show. It's sort of a spiritual sequel to Nathan for You, which is, at its best, one of the funniest shows ever made. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, and there's been, obviously... Well, what, what were you going to ask about the online discourse? or? Well, sh- sure.
5: What do you think about it?
0: Yeah, I think he's... I think it's a somewhat exploitative show in that it's a reality show that holds real-life people up to ridicule who wouldn't otherwise be exposed in that manner. But I... I don't care. <laughs> I guess I think I think it's it's hilarious and it's brilliant and it has moments of real depth. And on the list of things to be concerned about in terms of like ethical culture consumption, I just I don't really see how this rates. I think it's an example of people getting their our moral intuitions can get a little bit short circuited if we see like one person who's like a victim or who we perceive as a victim. When I, I don't know. I just I, I just. I don't have it in me to get that upset about this, given everything else going on in the world. Maybe that's a shallow take.
5: Yeah, we also don't know entirely what the people in the show know and don't know, like who knows what at what time. So we can kind of assume that people are being taken advantage of, but we're not entirely sure like how much is revealed to them. That's also yeah. part of it.
0: Well, I mean, they, so they, they all had to sign um, releases, but you can be pretty creative with how you phrase a release, and you, you don't need to say on the release you're going to come out looking pretty bad and be held up to national scrutiny in this. So that's absolutely an icky part of the show, but I, I still think it's brilliant. Yeah,
5: I agree. I, I think that I, personally I have maybe a thing in me where it's kind of like, you know, if something is great art, I I am willing to put up with some ethical ambiguity, to yeah. you degree. Uh, but yeah, I think that this re- rehearsal, there's a very good chance that in 20 years we're looking back in sort of the prestige television of this time, and this is maybe... The, one of the big ones like the sopranos, uh the wire, uh the rehearsal, honestly. Uh so people should definitely look, check it out if they, they haven't seen it. And check out Nathan for you, which is maybe even better.
0: Yeah, yeah. Start, well, I don't know which one to start with. They're both amazing. I yes, well, but everyone listen this. It's, not, it's to... not
5: done. So we can't we can't judge exactly. in the entirety. But uh yeah, it's 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 a shame that for so long it's been a bit obscure. I'm glad that it's, it's getting uh Nathan's getting some real recognition.
0: Absolutely. Uh, thank you for the call. Thank you. Lemon Party, what is up? Hello, can you hear me? Yep. Can you I hear can, me? Yeah.
6: Perfect. Yeah. Um. First of all, yeah, I will make sure to look into that Nathan For You sequel. I've heard good things about, like, the original, so I don't know enough about the other. Anyways, uh, I was just curious, have you received any update on the Emily Bazelon um, endorsement on Political Gab Fest? Has, has it already happened? I wasn't sure.
0: Oh yeah, I heard it actually. It was cool uh, to hear Plots reading that out. Uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I think they have a pretty normy audience. I'd be surprised if they got complaints, but it was definitely cool to hear us uh, being endorsed by a podcast I've listened to for a long time.
6: Do you remember which episode it was? I, I was trying to find that myself.
0: I uh, definitely, man. This shows how bad my memory is. I would say between three and four weeks ago, if I had to guess.
6: Three and four weeks ago. Oh. Probably. Either way, I can look through those. of that. Either yeah. way, um, yeah, I was just curious like if they, I was surprised they did mention that. Uh, I, I saw some of the Twitter dialogue. The, the stuff around Emily Bazelon has kind of like died down a bit, though you occasionally see a little bit of a uh, dig up. This was
0: about the, uh, New York Times Magazine article she back, wrote on gender back, stuff. Yeah. Yep.
6: Um, I guess the only other question I have, and I'll keep it short, uh, have you seen the that new movie, um, Marcel the Shell, uh, with shoes on. I've I not. I've not. All right, no worries. Either way, I'll let you get going. Otherwise, thank you very much for your time. Have a good day. Thank you.
0: Should I should I see the movie? Yes or no?
6: Oh, absolutely. It is it's like an A twenty four movie. It's the same people from The Green Knight, uh, like the same people who make all those like high end uh, horror movies. It's really good. But this is like a movie that's like PG. It's like should be made for children. It, it, it is. Well, I mean, it can be for children. It's unbelievably wholesome, and it has like uh who who's the who's the director from Sixty Min- Minutes? But she was in there too. So I, either way, it, it's really good.
0: Uh, I will. Uh, I'll check it out.
6: All right. You have a good day. All right. Cheers. Thank
0: you. Thank you. So Ned is going to be the last caller. Folks who are waiting, if you if you come into one of my next couple rooms and just remind me in the chat. Uh, that you got cut off, I'll bump you to the front in one of the next couple rooms. Sorry to make you wait and then end it.
7: Anyway, Ned. Hey, Jesse. Um, So I wanted to ask about an issue you've mostly steered clear of, Um, and uh, here are my hints. It's in your wheelhouse. It touches on how science is conducted and the intersection of science and public policy and how ideology can fuck things up and perverted incentives can skew things. And uh, it involves actively dishonest scientists pushing an agenda based on naked self-interest while calling anyone who disagrees a bigot. Can, Damn. You, guess, can you guess the issue? Um,
0: I mean, a lot of like race and racism research falls in that line, but I don't think that's what you're talking about. No, tell, tell me. COVID origins. You, oh, interesting! You, you, yeah. you would
7: be the per honestly of all the people I I wish would pay more attention to it. You're literally you and Katie would be number one on my list. I'm just curious Have you thought about that at all, um, and just what your what your general thinking of that issue is because it seems like you really haven't talked about it at all. Yeah, I mean the reason I
0: haven't is I'm very underqualified because I don't know anything about epidemiology and I wouldn't know how to like I'm I'm. I'm not good at statistics, but I know enough about like gender dysphoria research that I can usually tell a good paper from a bad paper. In this area, neither of us has any expertise and would be such an uphill climb. I obviously agree that there was uh, clear pressure to, to go with not the lab origin story. Uh, and I think that's pretty obvious and a fair thing to point out. But in terms of a journalist who could like sort of get to the truth of that i I'm, i don't think i'm well qualified i also my sense is also like they just really don't
7: know that it hasn't been resolved uh they, a big reason we don't know is that the, the, they literally appointed they they they, they appointed the the, fo- the the fox who killed all the hens to investigate the the murder in the hen house the guy peter <laughs> Dajic at EcoHealth alliance they put him on the investigatory committee to look into this and said no couldn't find anything and right. there was just there was just a, a piece that came out in Science magazine where these there's one virologist named Angela Rasmussen. She's basically the Jack Turban of the of the uh, of the zoonotic theory. Right. And she and her co-authors said, I don't know if she authored it, but she was promoting it on Twitter. And they said this paper dispositively proves that the virus emerged from the wet markets in Wuhan. And then you look at what the edits were from the preprint to what they actually came out, and they explicitly were told, even by Science, which is very uh, pro zoonosis theory. That they can't say that this that this is dispositive evidence because it's simply not. So oh god, anyway, I, should, I,
0: I Will you I will you email me a, a few yeah. me links on that? I should if it's that straightforward. I should look it up. I'll do that. Right.
7: I think you the idea that you you are not qualified because you're not an epidemiologist is basically saying that no journalist is qualified. Because,
0: well, yeah. I mean, to be I fair, like, I just mean I, I don't mean you have to be a youth gender clinician to write about that. I mean, it's just it is a very separate area. But anyway, if you send me links and it's as straightforward as you say, I think that's worth looking into.
7: For sure. Thanks for considering cool. it. Have a good one.
0: Thanks, you too. Uh, okay. Sorry I have to cut the rest of you off. Like I said, if you uh, drop a line in the chat in the next couple rooms that I do, one of which will be either tomorrow or Saturday, I'll bump through to the front. This was a really good conversation, touched on a lot of good stuff, and I appreciate you guys listening. As always, I would just ask for you to spread the word and tell folks about this and uh, the other stuff I got going on, and I guess that's it.
5: And I hope you all have a good Thursday. Don't do any creepy autoethnography. Farewell.